We uh, just was handed a note here. This is a uh, prayer request, an emergency prayer request from uh, Cincinnati, and I'm going to read this to you. Kinsley McRae is having an emergency bronchoscopy at 11 a.m. this morning. While still on the ventilator, her oxygen levels have dropped dangerously low. This has happened several times since her surgery on Thursday and again this morning. She will not be able to get off life support until she can remain stable on the ventilator. Pray for the bronchoscopy, for her oxygen levels, blood pressure, heart rate, pain control, all of those things. And uh, at 11 a.m., that is uh, in 15 minutes. Let's pray. Father, uh, you have done so many wonderful, good, and mighty, and awesome things this week. And Lord, we're asking you to get involved here again in a special way. Send a mighty angel to that room where uh, Kinsley is. Watch over everything that happens there, Father. Put your healing hand upon her. Guide the procedure that she will have. Ultimately, Father, we're asking for life, health, and strength for her. And Father, we look forward to the day when she can be uh, here in this building with us every time we meet and running around here and making all kinds of problems. That would be great. And, uh, Father, we just uh, love you, the fact that we can come to you and uh, ask for things like this. Pray a special blessing on uh, Aaron and Kim, as I know they're very concerned. And please, Father, just be with that family, and especially with Kinsley and with those who are ministering to her today. I pray that the very best that can be done will be done for her. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God is good all the time. Yep. And uh, he is uh, being good to us today. And I, I think I said this last week. Sometimes you don't think he's being good. You just have to wait a little while. And then it kind of becomes clear uh, that he was being good all along. I want to begin with a scripture reading from John chapter 1. That was our scripture reading this morning. And, uh, of course, this is early in... Uh, the ministry of Jesus, um, he's still calling his disciples. And so here we are, John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And then the verse continues on to say that they went home with him, or they went to the place where he was staying, and spent the afternoon with him. And all this happened around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I, uh, it's that question right there that I have highlighted and underlined and everything, what do you want? And when Jesus asked that question, uh, what do you want, there's a couple of different ways that we can take the question. You can't really tell from reading sometimes. Written words are hard to uh, interpret. We run into this problem on Facebook and with emails and things like that. You know, we're communicating, we're writing letters, messages to one another, and they've given us these little emoticons and all that so that we can know what the emotional impact or the emotional load of that statement is sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't but 
You know, you can't really tell sometimes from reading words what the expression is on their face, what the tone of their voice is, what their body language is, the intensity with which they say those words. Those are all things you can only pick up from being in the actual presence of the person or hearing their voice. And when you look at this question, what do you want? Uh, could be just be a casual question. Jesus saw a couple fellows following along behind him. What do you guys want? <laughs> you want to go? Let's go drink some coffee. <laughs> let's uh, let's go sit here in the park. Let's 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 just let's talk about OSU football or something. You know, what do you want? <laughs> but it could be uh, one of those uh, penetrating, life-changing, soul-searching type questions that Jesus was famous for. And uh, if you just go through the Gospel of John, you'll run into this in a couple different places. John chapter 5, Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda. There's a man laying there who's been there for 30, 38 years. And uh, supposedly he was laying there waiting for the water to be stirred so that he could get into the water and be healed. Jesus comes up to this guy, and, and uh, did you know the question he asked? This guy's been laying there for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? What? <laughs> I've been laying here for 38 years trying to get into this water. What do you mean? Do I want to be? Of course I want to be healed. Jesus had a reason for asking that question. It was more than just the words. John chapter 21, uh, Jesus comes back at Peter three different times. Peter, do you love me? And Peter answered that question the best he could each time. But he wasn't quite catching exactly what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was making a point with that question. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is just a few weeks out from the cross, and uh, he and his disciples are at Caesarea Philippi, and he says to them, who do men say that I am? And they all look around at each other, and they start to say, well, no, some of them say you're John the Baptist back from the dead, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That's who people are saying you are. And then Jesus asked the question of the ages. Who do you say that I am? Wow, that's not idle chit-chat, is it? Who do you think I am? I mean, if all those other people, they can say whatever they want, but what really matters is what you think. Who do you say I am? Luke chapter 8, Jesus is with his disciples in a boat out on the uh, Sea of Galilee. There's a terrible storm that comes up. Jesus comes up, says, peace be still. Water's all calmed down. The disciples are looking at him like, wow. Who in the world are you? What in the world has just happened? And Jesus says something to them. He says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And you see, the, the, the words are there, and you can interpret them in a lot of different ways. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't think that when Jesus said, what do you want, that this is just some casual question. I think this is one of those loaded, serious life-changing, soul-searching, getting down to the heart of things type questions. And the reason I say that is because it's here. It's in this book. I don't think God is uh, in the business of preserving irrelevant small talk, chit-chat that we might make just passing the time of day with somebody. I don't think that's what the Bible is about. I think it's about, I think it's about important stuff, and I think that's why it's preserved here. So why does Jesus ask this question? Because this question was going to be fundamental to the two guys who were following behind him. Now, we already know 
one of these guys' name was Andrew. And this was actually the beginning of Andrew's uh, following of Jesus being a disciple. And the other guy is not named, but I'm suspicious that it's John, the apostle. John has a habit of not mentioning his own name in his own book, in his own gospel. And so this unnamed disciple, I'm just suspicious that, it, that it's John, the apostle, who was with Andrew here. We don't know about the other guy. But Jesus looks at these fellows who are following along behind him, and he says, what do you want? What are you seeking? And what Jesus is asking is the fundamental question of being a disciple of Jesus. Because what I want determines what I will do and what I will be. And the direction of my life and the speed with which I go after it, it will determine if I enjoy my life. It will determine whether I'm prepared to be a disciple it will determine, uh, I mean, we all understand it takes a certain kind of commitment, a kind of heart, in order, in order to follow Jesus. If I want spiritual things in my life, then, if, I mean, if I really want spiritual things in my life, I'll end up doing spiritual things, I promise you. And if I really want to be a spirit-led person, eventually that's what I'm going to become. And if I really want to be a spiritual man, that's what I will become. People just have a way of whatever it is that you want, that's where you end up. Because whether you realize it or not, it's pulling you along. It keeps you headed in a certain direction. And Jesus looked at these two men who were following him and he says, What do you want? What do you really want? Sure, I, I see you want to be with me, you want to follow me, but what do you really want? Every Christian has to answer that question, Jesus' question, what do you want? Because it's fundamental to our discipleship. It's fundamental to our usefulness, our service, our obedience, our joy, our success, our effectiveness, our victory. It's fundamental to every aspect of our lives, and especially that part that is hooked up with God. So Jesus asked this question because he knew this, and I think we know this too. Not everybody who sets out to follow Jesus wants the stuff it takes to be a disciple, a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, almost everyone who starts at least wants to be known as a disciple. We want our name on a membership roll somewhere saying that we're a member of some church somewhere. And we want to maintain enough of the trappings of discipleship to at least pass for a disciple. And we want to give the preacher something to say at our funeral when that day rolls around. They would say, hey, we know this guy. and He confessed his faith and he was baptized and you know, he showed up at church and he gave his money and he helped out. And he was a good neighbor and he was this and that. But the bottom line is some of us don't really want to be disciples of Christ we just want to pass for being a disciple of Christ. And man, there's a world of difference in that. Most of us already have a long list of things that we want. Everybody's got their wants. And Jesus is on the list. You wouldn't be here this morning if Jesus wasn't on your list, if discipleship wasn't on your list of things that you want. He's on the list somewhere. 
But there's dozens of other things that's on that on our list too. Like we want a nice car, we want a nice home, a nice neighborhood, nice neighbors. We want some nice fields and woods. We want a good marriage and a good family. We want to have good kids and be good parents and provide a good education for them. We want to have a good job and take some nice vacations and have a nice retirement. Go to a good church and be a good Christian and sing nice songs and do nice things for, for other people, for Jesus. And so we all, all of us already have a long list of things that we want in, in our lives. It's a long list, and Jesus is in the list somewhere. But to be a disciple of Christ, Jesus can't be in the list of things we want. He has to be at the top. If you're not right at the top, you can't be right anywhere else. If you don't get that one right, nothing else matters. The Apostle Paul was talking about his life uh, in Philippians chapter 3. And he talked about his life before Christ and he talked about his life after Christ. And so Philippians 3 verses 4 through 6, he talks about before Christ. And man, he had a lot of things that he had striven for all of his life. And they were good things and they were important to him. And they, they were like up there on, uh, on the things that he really wanted. And he tells the Philippian church about this. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He said, man, you know, this is stuff that every Jew, every good Jew would want to have this on their list. It is on the list of every good Jew. And he said, man, I, I, I did it all. I did it all in capital letters. That was before Christ. But then he talks about after Christ. It's a totally different thing. And he says in verse 7 through 9, after Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All that stuff I thought was so important. It's not really that important. In fact, it's, it's like rubbish compared to what I have found now. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And you know, it, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? Paul had a list of assets. You know, he, he had a ledger for life, so to speak, before Christ. And on his ledger, he had all these assets that he could list. These are things that are valuable. These are things that I've wanted. These are things that I've worked for so hard. And then along came Christ, and all of these assets suddenly get shifted to the liability side of the column. And he trades it all in for one asset, and that is that I may know Christ. You're not right at the top. You can't be right anywhere else on the list. And when Jesus goes to the top, your list begins to shift around, and it all begins to look very different. And sometimes we get so busy doing good things and being nice people and having nice lives that the one thing of supreme, eternal importance, value, gets lost in the hubbub. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13 about 
a pearl merchant, a merchant who was a trader in pearls. And uh, this guy had spent all of his life uh, working with pearls, I guess, and other kinds of valuable things like that. But it, he says it like this, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Here's a guy who had worked all of his life seeking out the very finest that he could find. And man, one day he happened upon the pearl of great price, and everything that he had got traded in so he could have just that one thing. And that's what Jesus has to be. He is our pearl of great price. All right. Now, I, I have struggled with this myself for many years. I've, I've struggled to be a disciple for 45 years now, something like that. I have to think about that a second, do the math. It's around 45 years. And there are so many things about discipleship that just have never set well with me. They don't fit who I am. And when I felt like I had to, I would, uh, I would grip my teeth and I would set my feelings aside and I would shift into low gear and I would get over the hill. I would do whatever it was that I had to do. Not because I wanted to. I just knew I had to. And so that, that kind of affects how you do those things, you know. If you're just doing it because you have to, kind of affects the whole thing. It might even affect the, the result uh, of, of, of what you're doing. Uh, if it's always, you know, just low gear getting over the hill, some of these things were distasteful to me. Some of them were frightening. Some of them were overwhelming. Some of them were just contrary to my nature. And I would pray and I would ask the Lord for strength for those things. When, when those times came, I would ask him for strength. So, you know, I was just looking at the Bible, thinking about what it says, Ephesians 6 and 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I said, boy, I need some of that. I'm about to, I'm, I've got to do something here that the Lord, I know the Lord wants me to do it. And I know I can read it right out of the Bible. I know what, I know what it says. I've got to go do this. I've got to take care of this. So be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then I would uh, I say, what I need to do is I need to ask God for this. So Ephesians 4, 16 Therefore, let us come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so there's, there's the promise right there. It says, I can come to the throne of grace. We can come to the throne of grace and we can get, uh, we can get grace to help in time of need. We don't have enough strength. We don't think we can do this. It's very hard. We can ask and God will help us. And whenever I did that, it always helped. But it occurred to me one day, this probably goes back about 13, 14, 15 years ago, that I was putting the Lord in a bad spot because I was asking him to strengthen me to do something that I didn't really want to do. Do you understand what, what, what the conflict is there? I was asking God to strengthen me to do something that I didn't really want to do. And so what I, what I discovered is the real issue for most of us is not an issue of strength or power. The real issue was and is and will always be, do I really want to do God's will? What do you want? It wasn't just idle chit-chat. <laughs> Jesus wanted to know what these guys really wanted out of their lives when he turned around and made that question, said that question. 
Think about it. Why should God strengthen me to do something that I don't really want to do? That's crazy. So uh, I, I began to change my prayer. And this goes back, like I said, 13, 14, 15 years. Because I realized my problem was not power or strength. My, I had a bigger problem than that. I had a deeper problem. My problem is what do I want to do? What do I want? Do I really want to be a disciple of Jesus? Or do I want to do the stuff? Or do I want to do the stuff that's needed to be a disciple of Christ? Is that what I really want? And so I've been praying to God to change my wants and my desire and my longing. I'm not praying for strength anymore. Oh, well, I, I do. <laughs> what, what I'm praying for, and for the last 14, 15 years, I've been praying for God to change what I want, to change my desire. Because when I want it, man, it just makes everything different. I'm able to shift out of low gear. I can actually get into high gear and head on down the highway. So let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk, the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now that's what Peter says to every Christian. It's not just for babes in Christ, but he's saying that to every Christian, even the old ones. He says, as like newborn babes, we are to desire the sincere milk, the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby. So I changed my, I, I realized it, it was about desire. And I began to pray for the Lord to make me hungry for the word. So let me ask you a question. Do you know why the average church member reads the Bible? Because they ought to. It's good for them. And the, God wants them to do. But the average church member doesn't read the Bible because he wants to. It's because he ought to. But what that verse is about is about desire. You ever see a baby nurse, you know, a hungry baby nurse? Man, it's like, uh, like an Olympic event or something. They're, you know, they, they, can't, they can't get enough, and they can't, get, they can't get there quick enough. And they're crying, and they're hungry. So you know why a disciple reads the word of God? Because he wants to. He's hungry. He can't wait. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I began to pray to the Lord to make me hungry for a righteous life. Uh, that's how my prayer changed. And you see, the average church member uh, strives for righteousness. Why does he strive for righteousness? Because he ought to. It's commanded. It's taught. It's there. We just make a decision and we do it. It's an ought to sort of thing. But do you know why a disciple strives for righteousness? Because he's hungry and thirsty for it. He wants it. He wants it really bad. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. This is David. Uh, David's talking about uh, what I call worship. And David was the man after God's own heart. And I, I, you can learn a lot about, about relationship with God by reading what David has to say in the Psalms. But Psalm 27 and 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
So I began to pray that the Lord would make me hungry for worship, that I would experience what David was experiencing when he wrote these words. Now, you know why the average church member goes to worship? Because he's commanded to. He ought to. It's what the Bible says to do. And, and we've got all this ought and duty and, and what's commanded. But do you know why a disciple goes to worship? Because he wants to. He's hungry for it. He can't wait. Psalm chapter 63 and verse 1. This is David again. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The most important thing you can pray, I think, uh, today is that you will be hungry enough for God tomorrow that you will go back to him and ask him and, and talk with him again. That's a, that began to be a part of, of the prayer, which I was praying. I was praying that God would make me, give me a hunger and a thirst to come before him. But you, you know why, the, uh, why the, the average church member prays? It's his duty. We know we ought to. God says it's good. We ought to do that. And good things can happen when we pray. But why does a disciple pray? Because he wants to. He's hungry. It's like the water that you find in a dry and weary land. Where there is no water. Here's Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. This is the one that says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So here's what Paul has to say about his concern about those people around him, his own countrymen who were lost. And he says, I'm praying that God would make it my heart's, it is my heart's desire and prayer that my people would be saved. And I began to pray that God would make it my heart's desire to see the lost saved. You know, why does the average church member invite someone to come to church? Well, you know, they ought to. It's a good thing to do. Who knows, something good might happen. But why does a disciple invite someone to church? Because it's the desire of his heart that that person be saved. That's what Paul is talking about. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Psalm 51, verse 17. And this is the, the Psalm 51 is the psalm where uh, David comes before God and he, and he makes this long prayer. There's 16 verses of, of, Paul, of David just saying, Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I can't tell you how sorry I am. I, I've done such a horrible thing. It's, it was about the sin of Bathsheba and Uriah and all that. And he goes on for 16 verses. Man, I'm telling you, he is a broken man. And you come to close to the end of 51, and he says, he says something here that it's important. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Which, if you look at those early verses, you can see, man, this guy's broken. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And, you know, I began to pray that God would give me a heart that was broken when I was wrong, when I sinned. And you know why uh, the average church member repents and confesses sin? Because they ought to. It's commanded. It's something we need to do. I mean, that happens more often than what we want to admit. But do you know why a disciple repents and confesses his sin? Because his heart is broken. 
And you couldn't stop him. No one has to tell him. And I could go on and on and on. Practically with every aspect of our faith, of our practice of Christianity. You know, why why does the average church member give? Well, he ought to, and he has to. But you don't know why a disciple gives? Because he wants to. That's a different thing. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Some people do it because they ought to. Some people do it because they want to. It's their desire. Why do we sing? Some people sing because we ought to. And some people sing because they want to. And here, here's what I'm going to... I'm not uh, criticizing anybody that's got low gear. We all have to have low gear. You cannot go through life without low gear. Okay, and low gear means you just make yourself do what you have to do. You know you've got to do it. Can't get through life without that. But who wants to live their whole life driving around in low gear? Anybody want to? Do you enjoy being in low gear? That's kind of what it's like if everything you do is because you have to, ought to, commanded, taught. There has to come a time when it's what I want. When God's will and my will become the very same thing. Now you're in high gear. And that's where you want to live your life. I'm suspicious that when my heart is right. When it wants to do God's will. I can then pray for strength and help in the doing. And I'll have all that I need. So two men followed Jesus on his way home one day. And Jesus noticed them, and he turned toward them, and he asked them, What do you want? And that was and still is and will always be the fundamental question to ask anyone who would be his disciple. Because what we want determines what we do, what we become, the direction we take, the joy and the peace that we have, the effectiveness, success, victory. It's all in that one question, What do we want? And the one thing that the Bible tells us we must want is him. To be related to him. To have him at the top of the list. We don't always want what we should. And so I'm saying, you know, if there was a response to this uh, lesson, I would say this. Maybe it's time to change how you pray. And quit asking for uh, strength and power and all that kind of stuff to do stuff that you don't really want to do. And maybe it's time to start praying about what you want, what you desire. That God would change the desire of your heart. Now, I've been doing this for about 13, 14 years. Um, I'm not there, okay? Don't don't get excited. Uh, I'm not there, but I'm better. (laughs) I'm better. I'm not the same guy I was 20 years ago. I guarantee you that. More of what I do as a Christian comes from what I want than the ought to side. And it's a whole lot more fun doing it that way. And I'm saying this thing that we do as Christians can be something that we do with joy and excitement and with just really effective whenever we do it because we want to and not because we have to or ought to. 
it just changes everything. Twelve years ago, uh, we, maybe it was 13 years ago, we put that little box out there, and we, we put the names of people that we wanted to uh, see saved in, in that basket, or the box, as we call it. We pray for the people in the box around here all the time. And we began to pray for their salvation, and, 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 and from time to time, we've kind of renewed ourselves. We've asked, I've asked you to come up and, you know, renew yourself by putting that, that maybe a card that has the name on it already. Put it in again and, and promise that you're going to pray. But we've been praying for people's salvation for a long time, the prep for, that the soil would be prepared, that uh, there would be a new heart within ourselves, that it would be our heart's desire, our heart's desire and prayer uh, that these people would be saved and that we'd be faithful in that prayer. And there has been a harvest. We've been asking God for a long time to send his workers into the field of harvest, that the harvest may come in. But I'm just saying, those people, and, and this whole thing that we're about, there's an ebb and flow in everybody's life. There's an ebb and flow in the life of a congregation. And we've been up and down. We've been sideways. And I, I don't know exactly where we are right now, but I kind of think we're on our way back. I think we've been kind of flat, partially because of me. But, we're kind of on our way back, and I know that the way back is going to be, is going to start with a renewal of our desire, and that starts with a change in how we pray, that God would change what we wanted. What do we want for ourselves? What do we want for this church? What do we want for the people in that box? What do we want? If we really want it, I think God will bless it and give it to us. Make something really powerful and wonderful out of the Sunshine Church of Christ and out of you. If there's someone here this morning that's not a Christian, uh, we're going to sing our hymn. If you need to respond, you want to come forward and confess your faith, then please do. And if there's a Christian here that wants to say, hey, I need to, I need to repent. I need to renew myself. I need to take care of some business with the church. I need to say some things to the church, then it's for you too. Let's stand and sing.